After the symposium, I met with the faculty individually for interviews to further pick their brains about new research findings and trials, but also to present more cases from ASBS members. And when I met with Dr. Mamanis, I asked him about the case of an older woman with significant comorbidities. We have a patient from Dr. Patty Tanofsky of Wichita, Kansas. 78-year-old woman with a large breast mass who's in a nursing home for severe Parkinson's. Very immobile, but no other major medical problems. The mass is over 10 centimeters, nipples completely retracted and bleeding every day, no palpable adenopathy, nursing homes changing the dressings, blood's weeping through there. Core biopsy shows mucinous carcinoma. I thought that the central part of the tumor was necrotic, so she was sent to Dr. Tanofsky's office to consider palliation to help control the bleeding. The tumor's strongly ERPR positive, HER2 negative. Patient's very resistant to going to surgery. So the questions are, would hormone therapy and aromatase inhibitor help palliate this? How long would it take endocrine therapy to work? What about radiation therapy? What would you think about this kind of situation? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough case, obviously. But what would take care of the problem immediately seems that this is a locally advanced but still resectable breast cancer. Seems like it. And obviously, if you can take this patient to surgery, there will be immediate relief of the problem. It's obviously a high risk for local recurrence. If she refuses to go to surgery, or even as an alternative, you can put her on aromatase inhibitor, and I think it usually will be good improvement, but it may take at least a couple of weeks to see stopping of the bleeding and healing of the wound. But I've seen cases that clearly you can do that and heal the skin totally and then proceed possibly with a mastectomy. Radiation is also another approach, but for this kind of patient, I think radiation will be a more difficult thing to get her into the table, almost impossible. But I think people are surprised how we all have this bias against taking these people to surgery, and eventually you can take them in the breeze through surgery because you can do that with a very quick general anesthetic and get it out in the next day. So that would be sort of my first preference, but then also new adjuvant aromatase inhibitor will be second. What about the fact that this is a mucinous carcinoma? Does that change in any way you're thinking about this? Not necessarily. If it's strongly air positive, I'll still give hormonal therapy. So, in fact, after this case was submitted, we contacted Dr. Tanowski for more follow-up, and the patient actually ended up having surgery for debulking. I mean, it seems like that's the only thing that could really help palliate her. She discussed it with the family in consultation and the patient, and it was chosen over radiation therapy. No nodes were taken. And interestingly, she says no systemic therapy was given, quote, reserving an AI for recurrence. What do you think about that? I mean, I would give an AI for that adjuvant therapy. I think it's well tolerated. A patient like that will probably not have much of an issue. I don't think I'll reserve it for recurrence. I'm trying to prevent it. Yeah, I think so, too. There shouldn't be that much downside. Of course, I guess you can always stop it if she's having a lot of problems, but certainly doesn't seem like this woman would go very long without some kind of systemic therapy before having some kind of problem. sure. sure. Interesting, though. I mean, I guess it kind of implies here it doesn't talk about a workup, but obviously I would assume she doesn't have metastatic metastatic disease. disease, Interesting to think about this tumor getting so big without any mass. Sure, sure. Or even even lymph node involvement, which of course is going on for sure. But but sometimes that happens. I mean, these tumors biologically are locally advanced, but slow growing. 
What do you think about, in mean, this situation, it's obviously different because of the comorbidities, but what do you think about the idea of using Oncotype in patients being considered for neoadjuvant therapy? Is there much data? I know there's, I think there's some data looking at that, but is there enough there to maybe consider doing it outside of protocol setting in some situations? There is not a lot of data in the neoadjuvant setting, although if you take the data from the adjuvant setting, you can extrapolate. I mean, frankly, I don't want to be giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy in somebody that has a low recurrence score because I think you would expect very low response, maybe some clinical response, but clearly a lack of pathologic response, and most of the studies have shown that so far. So initially, you know, when we actually designed the before it trial, we talked about using oncotype to exclude patients with a low recurrence score. But we didn't do it because, first of all, we did not at the time the feasibility of doing the oncotype test in core biopsy material. And second, we didn't want to sort of restrict the trial, put another barrier to the trial. And thirdly, because we wanted to actually then validate that prospectively. And in fact, that's one of the plans of the correlative studies in before is to look at the response, pathologic response, according to Oncotype and also to some of the genes that Luca Gianni has reported in his experience. That'll be interesting. Yeah. I have another case from Dr. Michael Cardenas, postmenopausal woman with high-grade, multifocal, ERPR-positive, HER2-positive, DCIS, with comedonecrosis. She undergoes a segmental mastectomy, but one focus of DCIS is within one millimeter of the superior lateral margin. One ductular element microscopically, the next closest site of DCIS appears to be four millimeters from the margin. Anticipating this patient's going to get whole breast radiation and hormonal therapy, his question is, is there an expected benefit of re-excision, and should re-excision be considered? That's still a very controversial topic, and that is how wide the margins for DCA should be. And obviously, we know that wider is better. There's no question about it. But then you have to judge against cosmetic outcome and inconvenience to the patient taking it back to surgery and how much you use local recurrence. There is now a paper that will be in JCO at some point, I think maybe already has been published, Monica Moore is one of the authors, that they did sort of a meta-analysis on patients with DCIS and margin width, and they kind of conclude that about 2 millimeters is an adequate margin. Nobody has addressed it, really, in a comprehensive fashion. The NSAVP has always said any margin. Any margin, because, again, not based on necessarily any data, but that sort of was their policy over the years. So this sort of mini-meta-analysis says that about 2 millimeters should be an adequate margin. You don't need more than that, but if you can achieve that, that's fine. So I would be comfortable in a patient with one millimeter not to go back if it's only one margin and everything else is widely excised. Now, if there are multiple margins that are close, then I would go back, particularly if a patient can afford it from a breast size standpoint and a cosmetic outcome. Now, another issue actually that would come up with this woman would be systemic therapy. First, the question of hormone therapy. It's a DCIS, but it's ERPR positive. So let me ask you about that. But the other thing is that this is a HER2-positive tumor. Maybe you can comment on the trial the NSABP is doing looking at that. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising, first of all, that they did HER2 because it's DCIS and typically we do not do HER2. But from a hormonal therapy standpoint, that would be a patient that would like to put on tamoxifen 
Now, forget the age, but if she's postmenopausal, obviously we'll still give tamoxifen since we don't have results from the B35 trial. But at some point, this patient may actually get an aromatase inhibitor if we show that it's better. But in terms of the HER2 new, this patient, if he didn't have a HER2, would be a candidate to actually be approached for participating in the B43 trial. And what we do as part of the trial is test for HER2 new centrally, where we obviously pay for it because it's not a standard test. And if that patient has a HER2 positive tumor, can then be reapproached to be randomized to B43, which randomizes lumpectomy patients between breast radiation or breast radiation in two doses of Herceptin given on the first and fourth week of radiotherapy, three weeks apart, at the loading dose of eight and then six milligrams per kilogram. That's interesting. You know, Norm Walmark was on our audio series recently. He presented a patient very similar to this, and he actually said, well, you know, I brought up the trial to the patient. And she didn't want to participate because, you know, I gave her the whole thing about what's been seen with trastuzumab, you know, cardiac problems, even though really there's not much of that, you know, without chemo or anthracyclines, not to mention it's only two doses, but the patient was kind of scared. What do you find people responding to this? Actually, I find the opposite. I find people are responsive to the trial. And, you know, if you describe it as, again, two doses of trastuzumab where there's really no evidence of significant cardiotoxicity, there's no chemotherapy involved, it's minimal inconvenience because the patient's coming for radiation anyways, they just get an infusion before radiation, so I find actually patients be more receptive in at least sending the test and then obviously if the test turns positive to be randomized. The big issue in this trial will become the issue of how many patients actually are HER2 positive. And the reports initially have told us that about 50% of the patients are HER2 positive, but some other reports recently suggest that maybe the number is lower. And I think so far we've seen about a 30% or so in the first 80 to 90 patients. We will update those numbers as we go on. And of course, these patients may be already selected to some extent that you send for HER2. If you see a low-grade, highly ERPR positive, you may not do that. So we'll see what happens. But the trial is accruing well and it's picking up. So it's actually a trial that hopefully will give us something. That's interesting. You mentioned the B35 study the NSABP did, and I guess now it's close to accrual comparing tamoxifen to anastrozole in DCIS patients who are postmenopausal. You know, based on all the data that's come out now with AIs, What do you think most likely we're going to see in that study? What's your prediction? I think my prediction is that we're going to see that the AI is more effective, and particularly when it comes to contralateral breast cancer, which is the majority, well, not the majority, but a good proportion of the events in these patients are local recurrences of contralateral breast cancer. And the local recurrences sometimes include second primaries in the ipsilateral breast. So I think the aromatase inhibitors have been shown to have at least 40 to 50% reduction in this type of event. So I think this trial will be positive, but then it's a matter of accruing enough events until we report the results. It's interesting, too, if it does play out the way we think it's going to play out, how it's going to be viewed in practice. It was really interesting when the P1 prevention trial came out, I think it was 1998, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, everybody's going to get tamoxifen now who's high risk, and it didn't happen. You know, there was a lot of concerns about endometrial cancer, quality of life. How do you think people are going to view anastrozole and, you know, essentially the preventive setting, whether it's DCIS or high risk? Well, I think that the issue with tamoxifen in the prevention is true, that the adoption wasn't as high as we thought it would be. But part of it is that when we designed that trial, 
we allowed patients to enter with a Gale score of 1.66 or higher. And admittedly, that is actually a pretty low score. And in fact, I myself believe in prevention, but I don't treat everybody with even a Gale score of 2 or 2.5, particularly if they have a uterus if they're older. But I'm more enthusiastic in treating patients that really need it, particularly in their 40s, when they have a couple of first-degree relatives and the Gale score is a 2 or 3 or 4, because the side effect profile is much more reasonable. So although one can argue, and politically one can argue that maybe the prevention wasn't adopted as much, and yet gave us the rationale to treat patients that really need it, those with a typical hyperplasia family history, LCIS, BRCA mutations. And those patients, I think, have greater adoption of tamoxifen because they really need to do something about it. On the other hand, again, the 70-year-old or 68-year-old with a Gale score of 2 are not thinking of the best candidates for prevention. And we did risk-benefit analysis and found that clearly you have to be selective in that. You know, I wonder where things are going in terms of chemoprevention research. You know, you had the first trial, then you had the trial showing maybe a little advantage with raloxifene. And then the natural thought was, well, let's compare raloxifene to an AI, but I guess that's not going to happen. No, because the NCI decided to pull the funding of the trial. And again, maybe a better approach in this economic environment and other priorities would have been to do a trial maybe of high-risk patients. Again, take LCIS and high-risk ADH or family history, a Gale score of, let's say, four or higher or five or higher. You can define your cut point. It's almost like the Taylor X trial. You can define whatever cut point you want to put, and then you need less patients, which makes the trial more economic. But again, we went with the same population of patients that we included in the P1 and P2 trial, and that obviously required a lot of funding. But clearly, this is a natural evolution, and besides that, I don't think that we'll be able to have imminent progress in chemoprevention. There's no agents that, despite of the desire to really delve into the molecular biology, there are no agents that have the safety profile in something like an aromatase inhibitor that's extensively studied in the adjuvant setting, the DCIA setting. And to even question the safety of these agents when we already completed the B35 trial on DCIS patients who have mortality equal to the general population is sort of ludicrous because this is a very safe class of drugs. I wonder if, you know, we might at some point get to a point where we don't need like these gigantic trials, that there might be some type of intermediate markers, either tissue markers or actually the issue of maybe even mammograms and breast density. Sure. And I think there was some data presented on the question of, you know, patients who have their breast density decreased, I think on tamoxifen and sure. the IBIS-1, I think it was. What do you think about this idea of maybe trying to find some kind of marker Yeah, intermediate biomarkers are also very important, although I think the clinical adoption will not happen based on an intermediate biomarker. I think you need to have the hardcore endpoint of reducing breast cancer incidence or, more importantly, mortality. But biomarkers like this will help select the appropriate candidates that are high risk. Breast density clearly is a high risk of developing breast cancer. There's also some data that potentially breast density doesn't allow you to detect cancers earlier, and then the higher number of positive nodes, more advanced tumors. So clearly, reducing breast density, for example, will have an effect not only on preventing breast cancer, but also on making the diagnosis. What about the issue of endocrine therapy from a research perspective? You know, we hear all this stuff about AIs now, and a lot of it. But like, what's the next step? Are there ideas out there that the NSABP and other groups are talking about, about how to take the next step? Is fulvestrin, you know, even a possibility? I mean, what else is out there that we might want to take a look at? I mean, fulvestrin may be a possibility, but it has to be probably with an AI. I Mm -hmm. think if the metastatic trial shows that fulvestrin AI is better than AI alone, I think that would be a natural step. 
I don't think that full Western by itself will be using the algebra setting at this point. Another, of course, interesting approach will be the whole manipulation of aromatase inhibitors and tamoxifen and the intermittent type of approach versus continuous approach. And I was really impressed in San Antonio with the data from the big 198 where letrozole upfront for two years and then three years of tamoxifen was as good as five years of letrozole. So I'm thinking, why should then, after you gave the three years of tamoxifen, what prohibits you from then going back to letrozole? Because we know that letrozole after tamoxifen was important in the MA-17, and what the original two years of letrozole changed in this setting. So it's possible that maybe the next set of trials, in particular, I'm starting to think now as B42 will come to an end, what are we going to do with the patients that complete the five years of NAI? Should we adopt an alternative strategy of playing with tamoxifen NAI? And just to clarify, B42 is the study, the NSABB study that you're in charge of, Looking at five versus ten five years. Five versus ten years of an AI, or the first five right. years can also be mm-hmm. tamoxifen followed by an AI, right. but it's five versus ten. But the question is, once this is done, and we have all these patients that complete again five years of tamoxifen, is there another strategy to play with the sequence of therapy that maybe that will make a difference? I have to say I was really disappointed by the big study because I was kind of hoping that maybe the arm of letrozole followed by tamoxifen, you might see a big bump, you know, something major. Yeah, that's sort of the arm that it was probably the dark horse in that trial. And some even thought the opposite, that potentially if you start with an aromatase inhibitor, lower estrogen levels, then tamoxifen could be recognized again as an estrogen, and maybe we'll have the opposite. I mean, there were all kinds of theories with how this arm was going to turn out. And it turned out, I think, in a way that nobody probably would have predicted, which is no difference from letrozole up front. Right. Here's another case. This one's from Dr. Diane Algran, 29-year-old woman, no family history of breast cancer, small palpable lump in the lateral right breast, normal mammogram, ultrasound shows a small ill-defined lesion, biopsy shows high-grade invasive ductal cancer, ERPR negative, HER2 positive, MRI shows a multifocal disease, the mass looks much larger than expected. A suspicious lymph node is seen in the axilla, and there's another lesion in the left breast that's seen that looks suspicious. Her question is, A, assuming the needle biopsy lymph node is positive, would you recommend pre-op chemo? And I guess trastuzumab, since she's HER2 positive. Assuming she receives pre-op chemo and has a good response, would you do a full axillary node dissection or sentinel lymph node biopsy? Yeah, this is a patient that I would be more enthusiastic about neoadjuvant chemotherapy and trastuzumab because this is a patient that you would expect pathologic complete response with an appropriate regimen to be at least from 40 to almost 60%. So I would definitely do that. I would give neoadjuvant therapy. Now, in terms of the center node, if you get a great response and then you do the center node biopsy and you do essentially a selective lymphadenectomy or rarely take one center node, usually it's two or three or four, and they're all negative, I personally would feel comfortable not doing an axillary dissection. This is a controversial topic. Studies probably need to be done and will be done to increase our confidence that the false negative rate is in the same ballpark. But I personally feel that we have data to support that the false negative rate is very similar, even in a patient that has a positive node before. Because that's the whole premise of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, to take somebody that has positive nodes, downstage them to negative nodes, and hopefully avoid doing more surgery, which is the whole premise of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And this is, you know, obviously a huge area of controversy. I mean, there were a couple of papers that have come out recently. Can you go over that in terms of what they really looked at and what your bottom line was? 
One was from a prospective study from the French group, the so-called Ghanaia study that was published in JCO. And this study looked at about 200 patients prospectively accrued in the multicenter setting, and they had sentinel biopsy and axial dissection to evaluate sentinel biopsy performance prospectively. And what they reported was that the identification rate was slightly lower in patients that were clinically not positive before neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and the false negative rate was slightly higher in patients that actually had clinically palpable noise before neoadjuvant chemotherapy. It was 15% versus close to about 9.5%. Again, the numbers in these studies are still small, because even if you start with 200 patients, the majority were clinically negative. So you're still down to few patients, and one or two false negatives will sway the percentage in a larger proportion. The second study was the iSPY trial, and again, this was a prospective trial looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy and collecting tissue for biomarkers. And as an aside, they actually look at the surgical patterns. And they had patients that had clinically palpable nodes before, or clinically positive nodes, or clinically negative nodes. And some went to sentinel biopsy and completed axial dissection. Some had sentinel biopsy and did not complete an axial dissection. So there was some selection. So in the numbers that we have, which actually showed also that if you had positive nodes before, the false negative rate was 15%. If you're uh, no negative before, clinically no negative, the false negative rate was zero. But the numbers were still very small, where again, one false negative would have changed the numbers dramatically. But again, these numbers don't reflect the true proportion of false negatives because some of the patients chose to have central biopsy and not complete the axial dissection. So those may have had a high likelihood of having a true negative center node. It's hard to know. Now, to put this in perspective, obviously, because these are small numbers, you need to kind of like put it all together. And you look at all the reports so far and kind of add them up, you come with always the magic number of about 10 to 11% false negative rate, even in patients that present with positive nodes before. And that, to me, doesn't seem to be all that different than what you get even if you have negative nodes. Now, the other thing is that even if you're clinically non-negative and you're a candidate for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 50 to 70% of those patients have positive nodes, microscopically positive. So, I mean, whether they're palpable or not, the majority of these patients have positive nodes. So we have a 42-year-old Hispanic woman who came to his office with a history of DCIS, unknown size, no radiation done. This is in Venezuela. She now comes in asking for prophylactic mastectomies. He performs the mastectomies and does sentinel nodes bilaterally, and he actually finds a T1A N0 tumor, comments if he had not mapped her, he would have had to do a complete axillary node dissection. His question is, what's the current recommendation on mapping prophylactic mastectomies and the current thinking on just doing prophylactic mastectomies at all? Right. Well, let me answer the second question, and there's clearly an increase in the use of prophylactic mastectomies. And there are now a couple of papers reported in patients with DCIS, any patients with invasive cancer that show that the rates of prophylactic or bilateral mastectomies is going up. There's a general trend to mastectomy. The pendulum is swinging now from the breast cancer surgery back to mastectomy for reasons that are somewhat unknown or uncertain. And in fact, in JCO, in the next couple of months, there will be an editorial by Monica Moore and Jay Harris addressing these papers, a very thoughtful editorial. So there's clearly an increase. Now, part of it may be the increasing use of MRI 
finding multicentric lesions. And even if you biopsy them in negative, the patient psych changes and says, you know, I want the breast out because I don't have to worry about. Here there were other lesions, and I'm not, now you tell her that you biopsy them negative, but they still have a question, were they, weren't they? So that changes the psychology of the patient. The second is the increasing use of BRCA testing and the availability of BRCA testing where you identify patients that maybe truly need a bilateral mastectomy because of the increased risk, and also improvements in plastic reconstruction and other techniques such as nipple sparing mastectomy, making it more palatable for patients to choose this procedure. But I think there still needs to be a lot of education for surgeons and patients that necessarily mastectomy is not the better option, and breast conserving surgery in appropriate candidates is as good as mastectomy. So that was the second question. But the first question you asked me was, what is the current approach with sentinel biopsy in patients? And in patients with uh, prophylactic mastectomy, obviously, if they're high risk for having invasive cancer, the concern is that you may have an occult breast cancer. What I do in these patients, actually, I do a bilateral MRI before a prophylactic mastectomy. And if the MRI is entirely negative, then I do not proceed with sentinel biopsy. But if the MRI obviously saw something, you biopsy it, and then it becomes a breast cancer. Now, interesting also for patients with DCIS that you end up doing a mastectomy because of multicentric disease, it's always a good idea to do a sentinel biopsy just in case you find microinvasion in the mastectomy specimen, and then you don't have the option to go back and do a sentinel node because you're already taking the breast out. So this is one of the indications for sentinel biopsy in patients with DCIS. It's a really interesting question, though, because, I mean, what kind of situations is the risk high enough that there's an occult tumor in there that it, you'd want to do that? It's very low. Very That's low. why I think yeah. I use MRI, which is the better approach. So here's another case. 50-plus-year-old woman with two self-identified 3-millimeter nodules in the left breast, no family history, mammogram is unrevealing, ultrasound unrevealing, MRI unrevealing. Excisional biopsies of both lesions show invasive ductal carcinomas. How should one proceed when faced with a patient with self-identified masses that have no radiologic correlates, he says? Yeah, that's really a tough one. I mean, it's not surprising because there were obviously very small tumors. MRI would not detect tumors less than 3 millimeters. In fact, that's the report I get from my radiologist is the MRI is negative, meaning that there is no tumor more than 3 millimeters in the breast. That's how they word it. In this case, I mean, I would be tempted to say, you know, your tumors were mammographically and sonographically occult and MRI occult, but yet that doesn't mean that the future tumor will also be occult. And I would still offer the patient breast conserving surgery if I can with the sentinel node biopsy and treat it as I would treat anybody else based on the final pathology report. But I know women are concerned because they say, well, if the first tumor wasn't found by mammogram or MRI or ultrasound, how do you know a next tumor will? And what I tell them in general is that I can sort of tell you that you're not going to miss a big tumor, but I couldn't guarantee you that you're not going to miss a one or two or three millimeter tumor, which is, or DCIS that can develop. So it's unlikely that the patient will die from breast cancer in the future because you didn't take her breast out. Let's try this one. Another case, this time from the practice of Dr. Luisa Cropcho, 54-year-old woman, presents with left breast nipple discharge, no mass, has a history of LCIS from 2002, didn't have any hormone therapy or mastectomy for that. She has a workup, which leads to an ultrasound, which shows an ectatic duct. Patients taken to radiology for needle localization. At that time, a palpable mass is noted in the same area, 3 o'clock. Core taken, LCIS. 
taken for excisional biopsy, found to have infiltrating lobular cancer and a papilloma, taken the OR for bilateral simple mastectomies and left axillary seminal lymph node biopsy, right breast pathology reveals no disease, except ADH is found. Left breast has a 9-centimeter combined total areas of infiltrating lobular cancer. Sentinel lymph nodes has a 1-millimeter focus in one node, positive H&E. Second positive sentinel node has less than 1-millimeter focus of invasion on IHC only. And the remaining five nodes are all negative. Posterior margin in the breast is less than 1-millimeter close to the pectoralis fascia. Question, risks and benefits of proceeding with completion axillary lymph node dissection versus radiation? Yeah, obviously this is an interesting case and something that sometimes happens with invasive lobular Very insidious tumor, it can grow in the breast extensively and you really don't have a clue and probably this patient would not have found out if it wasn't for the papilloma that led to the nipple discharge. The prior history of LCS obviously would have led me to put her on tamoxifen at some point, but some people obviously don't take it. She did have five negative nodes in addition to two that had essentially, it's actually micromets, it's one millimeter. So... That's a tough case because, you know, I would probably use the Sloan-Kettering nomogram from a patient like this to estimate what is the risk of residual disease. And if I can get the risk down to less than 5%, maybe I would not proceed with an axillary dissection. This patient needs radiation because he has a big tumor in the breast. It needs chest wall radiation, so it's not unreasonable to extend that to the axilla. So I think that would be a reasonable approach. Now, if she didn't have any other sentinel nodes that were negative, I would be more inclined to go back and take more. But, you know, two out of seven positive, it's much more of a favorable characteristic if you put it in the Sloan-Kettering nomogram. And, you know, the other thing is a multicentric disease tends to actually have uh, more extensive nodal involvement and potentially even the whole central node concept may not be applicable. That's sort of anecdotal from an anecdotal experience, but you do see there are publications actually that nodal involvement is higher in patients with multicentric disease. What's your view on the role of MRI right now? Well, that's a very controversial topic. And in San Antonio, we heard the results of the British trial, the COMIS trial, looking at reoperation rates as the endpoint in patients with operable breast cancer for wide excision, and there was no difference. But there were some that had unnecessary mastectomies in about 2%. Now, the quality of MRI in that study was probably the most acceptable quality that we expect in this country. There were a lot of false negatives as well as a lot of false positives. But nevertheless, I think the use of MRI should be very selective in patients with diagnosed breast cancer. I use it when I cannot define the tumor readily by mammogram and ultrasound. I don't use it routinely. I also use it more often in patients with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but again, not exclusively. If I have a patient with a fat-replaced breast and a speculated mass that I can easily define, I don't need an MRI to tell me how big the tumor is and how much is left because I still have to operate and still have to do a lumpectomy, even if it shrinks down. I put a clip and so forth. But in somebody with dense breast that you really don't know how much disease is there, particularly with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I think it's reasonable to have an MRI. In terms of screening, I certainly would not recommend it, but there are some categories of patients, those that have dense breast and have a lifetime risk for breast cancer of 25% or higher than the guidelines recommend an MRI should be considered. So I use it for patients with PSA mutations that choose to keep their breasts and undergo chemo prevention. Those are the patients that I do MRI almost yearly. You know, just sort of taking a step back and a deep breath, 
Are there any local therapy issues that we haven't talked about that you get a lot of questions from surgeons about? One interesting sort of new development is this, and gotten a lot of attention, is this whole area of reverse axillary mapping. I don't know if anybody has talked about that. No, I've never heard of uh, Susan Klimberg has talked about in a couple of reports already in the literature where people will map the arm of the patient and then try to identify axillary nodes that drain the arm. And these are not necessarily the same nodes that drain the breast. So by mapping the nodes from the arm, you can actually preserve them when you do your sentinel biopsy or axillary dissection and potentially can decrease lymphedema. These nodes are usually not involved by breast cancer and only the nodes that drain the breast. So there are essentially two different pathways, the one that drains the arm and one that drains the breast, and they don't necessarily communicate unless there's multiple nodal involvement. So there are a couple actually papers on that, and it's an interesting concept. I don't think I understand it. What people do is they put blue dye mm-hmm. in the inner arm. Right. And then when they do the sentinel biopsy or axillary dissection, they look for blue nodes. Hmm. And those nodes eventually should be preserved because those nodes drain the arm and not the breast. Hmm. And typically they're not involved when the axillary nodes are minimally or uh, there's no involvement. But in the old days when you cannot identify those then potentially you can take those and lead to lymphedema. Interesting. So that obviously requires a lot more research. So you take out the nodes that don't pick up blue well, you dye? Take, usually what people do this technique is they inject the isotope in the breast mm. and they look for hard nodes in the axilla, mm. but also they inject blue dye in the arm, so they try to avoid the blue nodes. Oh, interesting. But the whole benefit is in morbidity. In morbidity, mean, right. not, You're not exactly. going to pick anything up. Right, and the different. whole big issue is, is it safe? In other words, hmm. are you going to leave nodes behind that potentially be involved? But What do you think is going on right now in terms of the number of sentinel nodes that are being obtained in general? And, you know, what's your approach to that issue in terms of making sure you've got an adequate number? How do you do it? I think that the number of center nodes removed is probably the single most important factor in reducing your false negative rate. In most of the trials, the multi-center trials, the average number of nodes is about 25 to 2.9 in B32, close to 3. And yet, I see a lot of reports of the surgeons that take one node. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But in general, I think the more nodes you take, and of course, also you don't have to go crazy because other studies have shown by the time you take about four nodes or five nodes, you don't get much benefit by taking additional nodes. But I think the key is to be meticulous, and after you take the center node, go back in the axilla with a probe and make sure you identify even small nodes that have some radioactivity, and that's how I do it. So typically, my center node biopsies are usually have four or five nodes, and it's essentially a selective lymphadenectomy. So you may get actually the best of both worlds, decreasing morbidity, but also making sure that your false negative rate is low. What's your take on oncoplastic surgery for breast cancer? Mel Silverstein's really been talking a lot about that. There are workshops on it. He was on our program recently talking about it. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, oncoplastic surgery, I guess, is the surgery you tend to do when you do a breast-conserving surgery, you tend to reconstruct the breast. And I think there's a variability in the extent of oncoplastic surgery. I haven't bought into the concept of major oncoplastic surgery with the bad wing incisions that Mel is talking about. But in my practice, I usually do sort of mini oncoplastic surgery where I move flaps in the breast and then use those flaps to cover the lumpectomy defect. And usually patients do pretty well, and the cosmetic result is very reasonable. Now, I mean, that's not to say that particularly when you operate in the lower part of the breast, you may not end up with a big deformity, even if you try to use some flaps. And maybe those are the cases where oncoplastic surgery would be important. 
but I haven't sort of adopted this big approach yet in my practice. The big question, obviously, we've talked about a little bit, is the issue when you complete the exercise dissection, right. if they're isolated two more cells, they usually we don't. If they're micromeds, we usually do. There are trials relative to the effect of radiation versus completion exercise dissection that will give us the answer which one is the best approach, both from safety and efficacy standpoint. We touched on the margin issue, and again, we don't know much about what the perfect margin is, but it looks like maybe a couple millimeters is a reasonable margin with reasonable cosmesis. Any comments or thoughts about partial breast irradiation? Yeah, in our place, we have decided to just use it only as part of the NSABP39 trial. Every so often, patients that have some contraindication for whole breast radiation, recently we saw a patient with Hodgkin's disease that had mantle radiation years ago, and now she had a DCIS in the breast, and this would have been a good candidate for partial breast radiotherapy. Small tumor, wide excision, I would feel comfortable about that. So it has to be a unique situation. We also use sometimes partial breast radiation, and this is more anecdotal, but they're small series, but we use partial breast in patients that present with a local recurrence in the breast, ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence, particularly if they're like far out, like we see patients that 10 years out of lumpectomy, they come up with a tumor in the breast that is maybe a second primary, maybe recurrence is in the vicinity. And those patients actually would do 3D conformal external beam radiotherapy as a partial breast. And we've had actually series, and some have been published by Mel Deutsch in Pittsburgh, that those patients have very reasonable local control. And I have patients now that I follow for years that have twice radiation, but the second part is partial breast. So you're saying that you're able to do partial breast radiation in a woman who's already had breast radiation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the physics of it that you can get away with that? Obviously, it's up to the radiation course to decide the dose, but it's usually partial breast, so they radiate only the lumpectomy area. But actually, people get developed fibrosis, but then if you follow them long enough, the fibrosis eventually resolves. It may take two, three, four years, but they're interested in preserving the breast the second time around versus having a mastectomy, which is essentially the standard approach. And we offer it very selectively, though. You offer it only in patients that are long out of the first breast cancer. What are the things that you're thinking about in terms of possible complications? To be honest with you, I've done it in a couple dozen patients now, and I haven't seen any complications except severe fibrosis initially, which eventually resolves. And if you follow them, you know, a few years down the road, the cosmetic result obviously is compromised because this is a breast that's operated now twice and has radiation twice. But people that have this procedure like that better than a mastectomy. Those are the ones that choose to have a repeat lumpectomy radiation. Very interesting. Any concerns about, you know, secondary tumors as a result of I suppose theoretically, yes, sarcomas, but I haven't sort of seen one. Again, this is so rare events that you have to have at least thousands of patients before you see one. But luckily in my practice, I haven't yet to see an angiosarcoma of the breast, which can occur, by the way, even after whole breast radiation the first time around. 